This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri land, and this is The Full Story. It was swift, it was emphatic, and and really the officers stood no chance. The commissioner could say that with... uh, It is with deep sadness that I confirm the deaths of three people during incident in the Western Downs late this afternoon. Late last year, Nathaniel, Gareth and Stacey Train killed their neighbour and two Queensland police officers in an ambush attack at their home in the rural town of Weambilla. Hours later, the trains were also shot and killed by police. Our assessment has concluded that Nathaniel, Gareth and Stacey Train acted as an autonomous cell and executed a religiously motivated terrorist attack. Now Queensland Police has labelled the shooting Australia's first fundamentalist Christian terrorist attack. It was a belief that Christ will return to the earth for a thousand days and provide peace and prosperity, but it will be preceded by a period of time of tribulation, widespread destruction and suffering. Dr Josh Roos is an associate professor at Deakin University who researches political and religious extremism. Today, I asked him why people are being drawn to these extremist beliefs and what it means for the threat of terrorism in Australia. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of February. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So when did you first hear about the shooting at Wambilla? Uh, like most um, people who work at universities, we keep a close eye on what's going on in the news. It was quite interesting because for quite some time, scholars, practitioners, even law enforcement have been paying some attention to the various uh, movements that have emerged post-COVID lockdown. The first reports and, and speculation out there were that this was some sort of sovereign citizen um, action and a um, living off-grid. It made sense, a living off-grid that accumulated weapons, it was rural Queensland, and we know there's issues there. And so uh, perhaps um, this was some sort of sovereign citizen, new development, uh, new form of violent extremism that we'd seen in, in, in Australia for the first time. And then when the reports emerged, you know, in the days following of the train's conspiratorial beliefs and their fundamentalist Christian beliefs, how did that change the way you thought about that incident? Yeah, look, it wasn't a surprise at first because... 
the videos that came out and, and was was quite it became pretty evident that they were influenced to some extent by some form of apocalypticism which has Christian roots. And in fact their father, I believe, was an evangelical Christian minister. So to me it struck me as all right, well, there's something going on here. I wonder if that's linked. But what really emerged and what changed things was when the commissioner came out and said, we've reviewed the evidence available and we've changed our, our stance mm-hmm. and that this is religiously motivated terrorism, which shocked a lot of people. Um, so they've clearly seen evidence in the, the transcripts or the diaries and various other material that we don't have access to that leads them down to that conclusion. So let's get right down to specifically what the trains believed. So police said that the trains believed in a Christian fundamentalist belief system known as premillennialism. What does that involve? Well, I'd start by defining fundamentalism because it's across the religious spectrum. So we're talking a return to text. What is believed to be the literal word of God as outlined in the Bible? And for that reason, the Old Testament's particularly influential or in, in Islam, for example, the Quran and the actual word of the prophet in the Quran. So really it's this attempt to live as closely as possible to the literal definition of the words in those texts. And so there's various manifestations of fundamentalism. There are some who are a little bit more liberal in their approach. Um, They might see that there's space for interpretation here and there. But if you look at some of the online forums, Christian and, and, and Islamic and others, there is an attempt to get advice as to how to do every part of your life. It's, it's all embracing. How should I dress? How should I have my hair? How should I act and, and what language should I use in certain situations? And it's an attempt to, to live as closely to God as they believe is possible. But where obviously that then comes into Christian fundamentalism as well, it's the Bible. It's the Old Testament in particular. It's this worldview of right and wrong that's outlined in those contexts. Uh, And so they will quote amongst themselves and to others any statement or verse, no matter how apparently disjointed it is and disconnected it is from today's realities and values. From the trains manifesto and the the things that we've seen of them online, what was their sort of branch of Christian fundamentalism? The Queensland Police have got experts in who would have advised them on on what particular strand and they've said pre-millennialism. We've got to look at it as an offshoot of Christian evangelical thought and tradition. It's important to understand that Christian evangelicism is a rel- relatively recent phenomenon and it's a very American phenomenon in many respects. What you see is this common idea, cost the spectrum, is this idea of the end of days, that eventually the world will come to an end, there'll be a second coming of Christ and a reign of a thousand years of peace and prosperity. But the, the key questions within Christian evangelical thought about, well, how does that come about? And for many, it's this sort of um, process where you talk about the rapture. Um, it's this idea that the good will ascend to heaven and the evil will you know, descend effectively to hell and then there will be this sort of battle. Now, for many, that is viewed as a metaphor. It's viewed as some sort of... Um, personal experience that they'll go through where they're accepted into heaven and and even those who who believe it might be an actual physical battle aren't necessarily moved to prepare to fight that battle. They don't believe it's going to happen any time in their lifetime. For those who've been radicalised, however, and that process of radicalisation is really critical here, people being drawn into these ideas, actually seeking to live them, seeking to enact them here right now in their lifetime, that 
sense of um, that, that deep-seated urge to participate in this battle, you know, of good and evil where demons and, and angels are fighting effectively in the streets to, to f- take the side of good. Well, that shapes their, their worldview and how they act. Why do you think identifying or understanding their driving ideology really matters? Well, it's fundamental to the, the problems that we're facing as a society at the moment. It's very easy to focus on treating the symptom. The much larger, deeper-seated issue here is what's going on in society that's creating a set of circumstances that people might be attracted to these movements, both individually but en masse. What's driving their momentum internationally and nationally? And, and this ties into much deeper issues around global inequalities and, and, and local inequalities. Uh, we're talking about the pervasive influence of free market economics over 50, 60 years, which have had a detrimental influence on key institutions. As an example, for working people, trade union memberships dropped from 50% to less than 10%, and it's primarily women in public service roles. And so trade unions offered a sense of intellectual solidarity and belonging. We're talking about, for example, formal attendance at church. That's dropped again from 50% roughly down to less than 10% international in the Western context, particularly the UK, Australia. And again, that offered a sense of community and belonging and, and solidarity. And there's these other solidaristic sort of dimensions to society that have been eroded by this extreme focus on individualism, by the casualisation of labour and precarious work, by uh, this sort of narrow focus on the individual actor. So there's this pervasive sort of hollowing out of society that's occurred over the last five, five decades uh, in particular, and, um, and, and people are looking for meaning. Now, if inst- key institutions are eroded, if key forms of solidarity and community are you know, no longer what they were or if they even exist anymore for some people, social media is where people are going to find that sense of belonging. We have online communities and, and tribes where people are coming together to follow key influences and, and, and so on. And that's no different for religion. It's no different for um, extreme ideas. And then we have Telegram and encrypted messaging apps that facilitate the flow of unregulated information to people's homes, to their bedrooms. And we have this extreme narrative emerging about, well, what's wrong with the world and how do you fix it? What proportion of evangelical Christians in Australia would you say could be radicalised and and have this broader view of needing to prepare? It's a tough question and I think we've got to take a step back from that question in a way and look at, well, have we learnt any lessons at all from two decades of securitising Muslim communities and and targeting of Muslim communities? And you you would hope we would have learnt those lessons, Um, perhaps too late for, for some, but you know, obviously, um, it's an it's an issue within a fringe of the evangelical movement. They may well hold these broad, same, similar beliefs, but much like Salafism in within Islam, which is a textualist tradition, the vast majority don't seek to enact it. We know that the trains, like many, became more conspiratorial after the pandemic began in 2020. What impact has the pandemic had on other Christian fundamentalists? Oh. <laughs> It's a big question and in many ways, at, at its base level, the same as many of us. Many of us who were stewing in our homes for <laughs> good chunks of the last two years experienced anger 
and um, some sort of animosity towards the government at times. But for evangelical Christians, it's it's this sort of, particularly the hard line who are looking for, for action in the here and now. If you see the world as ending in front of you um, and you see the world as full of immense corruption, or the other key factor here is government authority and control, and what is viewed as an atheist government, thus inherently evil, then you've got this idea that we, we are fast coming to the end of days. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a perfect storm of events because we're talking about at the moment the processes of catastrophic climate change and the weather events that accompany that, you know, biblical proportion floods, fires, um, you know, like, and the deep-seated disruption that that brings. And ASIO has previously warned of the threat of far-right racist and national groups in trying to recruit people who've been potentially radicalised by COVID conspiracies. But I note that last year it dropped the terrorism threat level from probable to possible, you know, as the lockdowns and the pandemic restrictions eased off. So how significant do you think the threat of fundamentalist Christianity is for violent extremism in this environment? There's this notion that with the lockdown ending and the, the extreme pressure cooker environment that that created, you'll see this decline. I would actually argue that we're only seeing the beginning um, of the impact of COVID. I think uh, much like the GFC was quite impactful at the time, people lost houses, companies went bankrupt, but it took four, five, six years for that to result in the extreme populism that we saw the election of Trump and Brexit and and other factors. Um, And so I would argue that really we're only at the beginning point of understanding what's going to emerge out of COVID. We saw some pretty extreme reactions. To what extent are those extreme reactions going to solidify? To what extent are they going to form the base of larger movements? We know the far right we're trying to recruit um, and active online and um, active in the Telegram chats and trying to shape the discussion towards certain areas. We know that um, Christian evangelicism is is on the move and, and growing and becoming increasingly militant in the US. And if America goes down that road and it has strong cultural influence on Australia, where are we going to be in five years in Australia? So we've got to look at this as a, a longer-term thing, not just the impact now but the impact in five, 10, 20 years. And remain vigilant. Uh, remain vigilant because we know that there are people who would love nothing more than to repeal abortion rights here in Australia there are, uh, and uh, are moving towards it, who are almost radicalised by what they're seeing in America and seeking to bring that here. Many of the the politicians, particularly those to the extreme right of the spectrum, who are in our parliaments, certain individuals, they've spent time in the US. They've visited these institutes and think tanks and had those conversations and are highly motivated to try to replicate that in the Australian context. Next. What could push people with extreme beliefs to violence? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Are there any factors that can help us identify those who are likely to act on those extremist beliefs? Well, it comes back to processes of radicalisation that do cut across the spectrum um, and, and subscription to narratives. So the narratives of extremist movements emphasise action. They emphasise effectively this process of going from zero to hero. You might be a nobody now. You might have a life filled with sin and you are a sinner. You've got no sense of purpose, but that's not your fault. That's the society that you live in. You know, you've got to act. You've got to join us. You've got to shape society through action and through violent action. That's the, the common narrative across the spectrum of different beliefs and traditions. But what you see is that the people who are attracted to that are often those who um, come from different class backgrounds, even education levels, but it's about trajectory. It's about where they see themselves in the world. Are they happy? Happy people don't go and join extremist organisations and commit terrorist acts. There's a deep-seated sense of um, loss of purpose even if they're well off financially, they might sense that they're not meeting their potential in some way, shape or form. If they're out of work and unemployed and looking for a source of meaning, again, that narrative offers it. The narratives are critical. Mm. They're the, the core dimension that attracts people. Now, how do those narratives spread? Well, over the last 10 or 15 years, it's been through social media, which authorities and, and governments are really struggling to, to control and to regulate. And it's social media companies that prosper from this. People talk about algorithmic radicalisation where you, you look up something and it feeds you more of the same. And, and so that's probably the front line in any battle uh, or attempt to um, reduce the extremism and polarisation we're facing. You know, far-right and Christian extremism is relatively new in Australia. What are some of the early warning signs police should be watching out for in these online forums and these uh, and social media profiles of people of interest to sort of prevent future attacks and prevent these extremist beliefs from mobilising? I'd say there's two parts to that and I'd probably need to challenge you on the first part uh, that, that it's new. Uh, the far right have been active in Australia since, um, you know, we've had Nazis in this country since uh, World War II um, and, and fascists for longer. And, and white Australia has this deep-seated history of racism that's embedded and if you look at the policies that were in place 100 years ago, now, they meet the definition of far-right extremism by today's standards, uh, you know, white Australia and so on, um, not treating Indigenous people as people. Same, same with evangelical and, and quite militant forms of Christianity. And, and so this has been around for, for a long time. That tipping point, though, and that, that point at which this has become increasingly militant, um, outspoken, active, where there's an increased risk of actual terrorist attacks, is again a phenomenon that's occurred over the last decade or two. If we're, if we're going to understand how best to sort of prevent uh, violent extremism and terrorism, we can't look only at, well, you know, we've got to stop people getting radicalised online, we're going to regulate that space. It's a whole of government approach and it's a whole of society approach. We have to look at issues of what's driving anger and alienation in people. And, you know, when you can't buy a house now where... Um, people are going to be increasingly unable to, with inflation and everything else, unable to afford even basics. 
that is the base that's necessary for the emergence of extremist movements and the attraction to these ideas. As a society, we have to ask these deeper-seated questions about what we stand for, what our values are, the role of government, the role of government in welfare provision, which has just been stripped for two decades now, the role of providing for those uh, who might be struggling to provide for themselves. Mm. These are deeper, deeper questions that have shaped how we got to where we are. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good point, and I should clarify that what I meant by recent is the idea of um, linking the far-right extremism to violent terrorist attacks and, and seeing it as a terror threat seems relatively new in Australia. Would you agree with that? Um, yeah, well, let's, I mean, let's, again, there has been different forms of extremism and terrorism in Australia, but I suppose we're catching up to the US. But also now in Australia where you had the, the various groups, uh, they keep changing because they keep collapsing under the weight of their own contradictions. United Patriots Front, Lad Society, Troopaloo Crew, all these other um, sort of proud boy type groups. Uh, and now they've come out and called themselves what they are now, they're actual Nazis. But at the end of the day, they've consolidated, they've been highly active, they're recruiting particularly in regional, regional Australia and, and gaining an attractiveness there where there is a sense of um, disjointment economic sort of inequalities and stuff that gives that sort of rise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they do need to be taken seriously, but it's only in the last six, seven years that we've started to see that. What lessons can authorities learn from the last 20 years, during which time, you know, as we've said, the Australian Muslim community has come under intense and in many cases unfair scrutiny from both police and from media? Yeah, um, there's so many lessons we need to have learnt. Um, the first is that there is no one Muslim community. They're incredibly diverse. There's the issue of um, the second and third generation who are locally born amongst Australian Muslims who often feel the sort of racist dimension of Australian politics a lot more than their parents ever did because they, they grew up here. They, they see it in a far more sophisticated manner than their parents there's the issue of um, the moment you start targeting entire communities, whether one brush that feeds directly into the narratives of violent extremist groups who proclaimed this war on Islam. And so, well, you know, when you've got shock jocks and tabloid radio and even mainstream politicians um, ripping into certain communities uh, and Muslim communities, then, well, that ties into this notion. So we've got to be very careful here with talking about Christian um, extremism as well. Because the vast majority of Australian Christians are peaceful, you know, people who want to contribute to this society, just like any other religious group. We don't want to get drawn into not only the polarisation, but the, I suppose, extremes of political rhetoric targeting Christianity as a, as a faith. This is an issue with an extremist fringe. So it's about being calibrated. It's about understanding that this is a symptom not a root cause. We've got to understand that what we're seeing here and popping up in these groups is something that needs to be treated at a societal level with education, with investment in health, with investment in mental health and with investment in different communities that goes beyond self-appointed spokespeople and institutions and, and works with young people in particular. Yeah. We've, got to, we've got to work um, you know, and calibrate our policies and ideas about how we engage beyond traditional mechanisms. Turning now to, I guess, the way we're framing this discussion compared to previous forms of, of violent extremism, how did you find the discussion around the Weambilla case compared with previously foiled Islamist attacks in Australia? What I've identified 
through paying sort of close attention to these for, for so long, is that it is so quick. Well, at the moment that it's suspected to be an Islamic terrorist or uh, an Islamic Salafi jihadist terrorist, I should say, there's, a, there's almost an automated response. Uh, it's this community, they're the problem. There's a lot of targeting and blame laid and an expectation that the entire community act uh, to prevent that. And obviously there's far less introspection in the Australian cases where, for example, Christchurch terrorist Brenton Tarrant had been active in engaging with Australia's far-right movements, had made threats to people here that had been overlooked. He went off to New Zealand and was involved in pretty extreme gun clubs and, and so on and come to the attention over there, but it was overlooked um, because no-one really identified the threat within. No-one really looked at uh, the potential for a white extremist terrorist to, to go and enact such a violent act. That's the same with the Queensland um, terror attack. We've seen highly active online the attempt to accumulate weapons, but it didn't form part of some bigger picture. that people We weren't looking for it. But when it comes to the reaction as a whole, um, what we see is complete refusal to ask questions about us as a society. We refuse to acknowledge that these people are from the majority community. We refuse to acknowledge that they look like us, they sound like us, and they've committed this incredibly violent terrorist act. Uh, what does that say about us as a society? We, we don't have the same introspection we expect and demand of other communities. And the fact that this has come out as Christian terrorism is not even on the front page of many papers. Uh, and some of the um, tabloid-type outlets are actually disputing it heavily. So there's uh, effectively a hypocrisy in the way that we view these acts. And if we don't get that right and, and ask those questions, then we're going to continue to see more. That was Dr Josh Roos. He's a political sociologist and associate professor at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation at Deakin University. Josh recently wrote an opinion piece for Guardian Australia about some of the issues we discussed. It's called We Need to Talk About Extremism and Its Links to Christian Fundamentalism. You can also have a listen to our previous episode of Full Story, where my colleague Nino Bucci interviews Madeline Train about her parents' conspiratorial thinking and her own grief. We'll post a link to both that episode and Dr. Roos's article on the Full Story page. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, myself and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing and wrote our theme music. The executive producer for today's episode was Miles Martignoni. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.